0: Hi, and welcome, everyone, to the National CMV Foundation's podcast. My name is Kalia Fleming, and I'm the executive director of the National CMV Foundation. Congenital cytomegalovirus, or CMV infection, is arguably the most common preventable cause of neonatal disability in the United States, affecting more than approximately 30,000 children per year. The National CMV Foundation is completely dedicated to preventing pregnancy loss, childhood death, and disability due to congenital CMV. And this, our podcast series, really, really, really seeks to highlight and emphasize advocacy, education, industry, and scientific advances in the CMV space. Bringing congenital cytomegalovirus to the forefront of the conversation We love using this podcast as an avenue to interact and engage with thought leaders, researchers, and parent advocates who are all working together to achieve the mission of the National CMB Foundation. We're super, super excited and proud that this podcast is hosted by our partner, Moderna, and we have some amazing guests with us today for today's podcast episode. Today, we're privileged to be chatting with Eileen Miller, the Rare Epilepsy Network, and I'm super honored to also be chatting with my amazing co-host, Cody Stevens. Cody, please introduce yourself to everyone listening
1: in. Absolutely. So I'm Cody Stevens. I am the president and CEO of the PMG Awareness Organization, PMG being short for polymicrogyria. So the best way to explain that would be to simply break down the word. Poly is many, micro, small. Gyria is the gray matter of the brain. Uh, with the extra gray matter in the brain, it causes multiple delays, any kind of developmental delays, as well as different um, developmental disorder-type situations such as epilepsy. Um, our mission as a whole is to build a community of support to enhance the lives of those affected by polymicrogyria through education, efficacy, and promoting awareness. I can speak personally. I can say I'm super excited about this one. I know between CMV and the Rare Epilepsy Network that I am connecting personally with both of these two as a parent, but definitely as the president and CEO of this organization. So I'm super looking forward to seeing where this goes. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much, Cody. And we're super excited that you agreed to partner alongside the foundation as a near and dear partner and in this podcast series. And so we will just jump right in and get started. Eileen, for those listening in, can you tell us a little bit about the Rare Epilepsy
2: Network, what it is, as well as introduce yourself Thank you so much, Kalia. It is truly a pleasure to join you and Cody, and both of you are are relatively new friends uh, to me in the work that I do in the rare epilepsy community, but it's been such a pleasure um, being able to interact with and getting to know each of you and the diseases that you represent. So my name is Eileen Miller, and I am first and foremost an epilepsy parent. I have a 19-year-old son who has a rare epilepsy. It's called a hypothalamic hamartoma. It's a mouthful. We just call it HH for short. And I'm the um, co-founder of a rare epilepsy organization that I founded about a decade ago. That's called Hope for Hypothalamic Hamartoma. And I'm also a consultant to the the National Epilepsy Foundation, the Test Research Foundation and other epilepsy nonprofits. And I'm the director of the Rare Epilepsy Network, and that's a consortium of rare epilepsy organizations that really works to give voice to each of those individual organizations on areas of common interest and purpose.
1: Well, that's awesome. I, that sounds amazing to me. I'm excited to really move forward with this just because I know that there's so much information that comes out of the rare, epilepsi, the rare Epilepsy Network. I know that the PMG Awareness Organization is a partner that's connected to the Rare Epilepsy Network, and some of the work that we've been doing together has been – exciting and very interesting. Uh, So with that said, uh, you know, I definitely want to give the opportunity to uh, elaborate on the Rare Epilepsy Network. Uh, Would you mind giving us a little bit more about the history and kind of its creation?
2: Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity to share. So actually, the Rare Epilepsy Network, or REN, Um, originated in 2013. And it was actually uh, originally a project that was launched by the Epilepsy Foundation, along with Research Triangle Institute and Columbia University, where they came together with 10 rare organizations. They acquired a PCORI grant. And they essentially the, the grant was for $3 million. And what they sought to um, build was a rare epilepsy registry. It was the first of its kind. Um, They built it and grew it over five years. It went from the 10 original rare epilepsy organization members to over 32. There were 41 different diseases represented in it, and it included um, information data from 1,500 patients or caregivers. And what was so incredible about this effort was that while some of the organizations that were part of the REN registry had their own individual registries. Many did not. So this um, partnership enabled all of these organizations to have registries. And it gave us this incredible view across or, uh, across different diseases. So whereas previously, if I um, was an organization that was focused on LGS or Dravet or even HH, I would only have insight into my specific disease. But with this registry, we could look across each of these diseases uh, across key issues like Seizures, medical management, comorbidities like sleep, gastrocognition, behavior. And what we learned um, was that even though uh, the the, the, uh, organizations that were participating in the registry each represented a unique disease, there were so many commonalities across the diseases. And we we really learned and began to understand that it wasn't just individual diseases that were suffering from cognition challenges or behavior challenges or sleep challenges, but these um, conditions were really prevalent across rares. And it gave us a much more powerful platform to be able to advocate for the services that the rares need for research into these comorbidities that affect rare epilepsies. Um, The registry itself came to an end in about 2018, but the information um, uh, compiled and it still lives on and is available for academia, for industry, for other folks that might be interested in looking across these rare conditions. And the partnership that was established by these 32 organizations became so important to all the folks that were participating that even when the registry closed and the funding came to an end, the organizations looked at themselves and thought, we're, we've accomplished something major together. We've built this registry. But there are so many other um, common concerns and things that we'd like to do. We'd like to keep the network going. And so in many ways, even though the network has been around since 2013, it underwent a, a bit of a rebirth in, in 2018. And since that time, it has uh, more than doubled in size. So we are now, it's um, 70 plus member organizations representing 70 diff rare, uh, different rare epilepsy um, diagnoses.
0: Wow, that is awesome. Thank you so much for providing that overview. And I, I really loved what you said about how once you dug into the work and into the needs of your partnering organizations that you realized there were so many things that were interconnected and it was just not one need, right? Not one just issue on the spectrum of care uh, that was needed based on, on on these illnesses. And I think that's so key for CMB in particular, as we know, it's linked to developmental delays, visual loss, hearing loss, um, seizures, epilepsy. So this type of network fits really nice with the work that we're doing since there's so many possible outcomes as a result of CMV infection. And so I wanted you to please just tease out a little bit more for listeners about key programming that falls under your role with the Rare Epilepsy Network
2: as you try to address all these varying needs and possible outcomes with these organizations. Thank you. And I, I think your observation, Kalia, is spot on. You know, we really did realize, and I think that registry played a big part of it in, you know, when you're working within a rare epilepsy, it's easy to think, wow, the burden on my community is so tremendous and not really look sort of outside. And I think one of the biggest successes of the registries was to see that we had common cause across many of these different diseases and where, you know, our communities may at times feel small when you look at the um, the different diseases sort of all coming together. Our communities, you know, grow um, exponentially, and um, I think that's been really helpful getting the attention of a lot of different folks that want to, um, you know, both find cures as well as um, better manage the conditions that are represented um, by REN. Um, I, um, you know, am thrilled to be the volunteer director of the Rare Epilepsy Network, and what I'm really focused on is first and foremost making sure that any rare epilepsy organization knows that we are here as a resource. Um, and uh, this is both for, you know, organizations that are quite mature, like tuberous sclerosis or Dravet, as well as organizations. Um, there's one recently for a gene called thap FAP12. And I just recently met the mom who founded the organization and she is literally uh, representing patient one and two. Her two daughters are, uh, two of the first kids diagnosed with this disease and she's out there looking for other people. In addition, we have other folks that contact us when they get a rare epilepsy diagnosis and they haven't found their community yet. So I think one of the big um, roles that REN serves is... We bring all these re- epilepsy organizations together. We find we provide mentorship for organizations that are more mature and maybe have been around for thirty or forty years. For those that are literally coming out of the woodworks now, and we also provide, frankly, a roadmap for folks that maybe haven't found an organization that are thinking about whether that's the path that they want to take going forward. As a network, we meet monthly and we try to bring to our members real um, value added things that cut across the different diseases, so for example, genetic testing, many of our um, rare diagnoses, not all of them, but many of them are caused by um, by a gene that has gone haywire and we recently brought one of the biggest companies providing free genetic testing um, to epilepsy as well as other diseases to come speak with our members. And the conversation included things like, you know, is your rare epilepsy gene represented on the panel? And if not, how can I get it represented on there? And can your organization be referred to for somebody that receives a diagnosis that includes that um, rare epilepsy gene? And so these are ways where instead of 70 rare epilepsy organizations having to sort of do the legwork of trying to make sure that their genes are on the panels and their organizations are listed in the in the resources excuse me we can do that more efficiently across the diseases and that is just one example we are looking at projects across registries, quality of life, ICD-10 codes. There's so many other projects that each of our rare epilepsy organizations are trying to um, tackle individually. And if we as a coalition can help provide that pathway and make that happen more efficiently, faster um, across diseases, that's really what, um, what our mission is and, and what we hope to do.
1: Wow, there's there's just so much that goes along with all that. You know, you definitely hinted on uh, a lot kind of in one statement there when you mentioned about, you know, the different, uh, you know, you were talking about the, the key programming and the major roles uh, that are going on. When you have th- that many organizations that come together for the common cause, I mean, the, the, the words community and partnership is just, they become so important. There's so much, like I said, there's so much information before, you know, you guys connect that all of a sudden when everybody gets together and has an opportunity and has the opportunity to speak on the different things and how it affects their organization and their, you know, their diagnosis personally, uh, it, it's amazing how far it can go. And, you know, I know you, you kind of mentioned on some of these, you know, in your, in your previous answer here, but I know that there's, with that set of there's a lot of different focal points, um, you know, for the rare epilepsy network and a lot of its partners, you know, with that many, with that many organizations represented, I can't imagine how many focal points might come into this, but I'd love for you to uh, to elaborate on the, the important focal points that are going on right now for the Rare Epilepsy Network.
2: Thank you, Cody. Yeah, there, there are so many focal points across REN, but I think some of the highlights to keep in mind, especially for people that may be less familiar, both with CMV and PMG and HH and any number of other rare epilepsies is that while epilepsy is not rare, um, there is a growing number of rare epilepsies, so we are part of a of a larger community and What people may not be aware of, as I mentioned before, some of the rare epilepsies are caused by have genetic underpinnings, but rare epilepsies can also be caused by structural, metabolic, infectious, and immune underpinnings as well. Polymicrogyria or PMG is an example of a structural epilepsy, and CMV is an example of an infectious cause of epilepsy, and hypothalamic hematoma is also an example of a structural epilepsy. And the other thing I think, another common focal point is that 50% of all people diagnosed with epilepsy do do not know the cause. Um, and, you know, with improvements in genetic testing, with imaging, with other diagnostic tools, I truly believe that what is rare now may become more common over time. Another, you know, commonality is that unfortunately treatment doesn't work for everyone and at least one million people, that's a third of all people diagnosed in the United States, have what's called refractory or uncontrolled epilepsy. So the the Wren, you know, really has a megaphone, an important megaphone to speak to the public, to make sure that if you know you, you have a young child or you have an adult and they have a refractory epilepsy. That you are insisting, in fact, you are demanding that you get genetic and other testing to find out if um, the underpinning of your disease is known. And the reason that's important is that um, in the sort of the scientific world as precision medicine um, is evolving, you know, across many diseases, it is also starting to evolve for epilepsy as well. And it is not one size-fits-all treatment. There are many drugs. There are many other surgeries and other types of interventions. And in some of these diagnoses, what you do can have um, a significant difference. If the goal is to stop the seizures, prevent any type of um, losses in um, abilities, the earlier we can get an accurate diagnosis, the earlier we can ensure that the Um, that the treatment matches the diagnosis and is not going to do more harm than good, the better. And so Ren really sees, you know, one of its biggest focal points is to take this information and make sure that we are educating clinicians, researchers, the public for all of the rares out there. So we really sort of stand next to each of your organizations in trying to, you know, kind of raise that microphone and raise the volume on that messaging so that um, so that all of the families that are impacted by a rare epilepsy will um, have a shorter diagnostic odyssey, will have you know a better opportunity to find appropriate treatments, and will have the best possible outcome um, uh, with in light of their epilepsy diagnosis. I love that you said
0: that, Eileen. I mean that just speaks to everything we're focusing on, you know, with the foundation, particularly with this this focus, this highlighting, this push for newborn screening, right? We we clearly know that if you have newborn screening, certain therapeutic treatments and 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 everything that's needed that can be started early certainly can be a benefit to the family um, and to the child. So I, I love what you said about that because it really seems like you equip um, REN partners with advocacy strategies, advocacy efforts, advocating for your disease, advocating for finding the idiopathic reason behind um, your type of epilepsy. So I really like that advocacy push for your partners. And I will echo what Cody said earlier about the word you used previously, which was community. And I think that is so key for all of us working in this space right now, as we just came out of a 2020 year filled with COVID unknowns. and. Depend on who you speak with, we may be coming out of COVID, we're not fully out the clear. As we look into 2021, it's important to really have that sense of community and belonging and resources close to you to help kind of provide that guidance and that support that's needed when we're working in the unknown, right? Like all of us are trying to increase visibility and awareness for our specific disease states. We're all trying to increase funds to help support the work that we do. So that community piece is really helpful. Now I know REN is a little different per se from other organizations, and that you're more of an umbrella serving network for, as you mentioned, seventy different um, epilepsy centered um, rare disease entities. So, if you could speak a little bit to considering that REN's this umbrella, overarching network comprised of several different organizations, how have you met the needs of your network partners?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I think to your point, as the umbrella organization, Ren was sort of born and has existed. Um, as a virtual entity and so the impact on ren has not been significant but the impact on our members has truly been quite significant everything from um, organizations that you know had many events planned whether it was fundraising events that these you know organizations many of them can be quite small were depending upon um, whether it was family gatherings um, because the rare epilepsies um, are you know rare um, the one of the biggest benefits that the organizations provide is in providing this opportunity to bring communities of family and sometimes families and researchers together. And um, a lot of those plans were either put on hold or they had to find other ways to accommodate that. Um, I think that also a lot of the research labs in the, in the, you know, broader uh, medical community, but certainly in the rare epilepsy community, they couldn't operate in the way that they normally would. And so, which can be devastating, especially for rare organizations that are doing their best to fundraise, to keep the lights on and um, do different types of animal modeling and other things. Those days where those labs were closed can really, um, it, be you know, a tremendous cost um, in the progress in these diseases. So I think you know what I have to say is that the rares in the best of circumstances are a resilient bunch of people. And many of the founders of the organizations um, are also parents themselves. So not only are they trying to serve the broader community, but they are living these diseases within their home life day in and day out. And it was wonderful to see, you know, many of, if not all of the 70 organizations really rise to the occasion during COVID, as I mentioned, to find sort of alternative ways to keep their fundraising initiatives going, to find alternative ways to get their families connected, to connect with their researchers, as well as to try to expedite when their researchers that were working, particularly those in labs, could turn the lights back on. And I think one of the other benefits of having an umbrella organization, is that it's such a rich learning environment. Um, And we see that time and again where one organization has a question, how do I do X? How do I form a medical advisory board? How do I hire a research um, intern? How do I... Um, you know, plan a conference or apply for an R13 grant. And fortunately, COVID in no way (laughs) stood in the way of our organizations from being able to ask those questions of their peers and get those answers and learn from each other so that they could, you know, not recreate the wheel each time, but do things as efficiently um, as possible.
1: You definitely, uh, yeah, you definitely should, uh, hit something hard there. The The word resilience, uh, I love, <laughs> I've always loved that word, especially when you, whether it be the different organizations or even the families, you know, on a personal level, the resilience in Rares, it's it's unbelievable to see and it seems to be across the board. It, it's absolutely across the board. And so, you know, the idea of Ren being such an umbrella network during you know, these very difficult times that we've all been facing and are still trying to push our way through, I can definitely see it. But I would love for you, you know, in your own words to just kind of elaborate on how critical partnerships are, especially in the area, you know, or, or in the era of COVID, you know, for rare disease organizations.
2: Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, you know I think that partnership and collaboration and building community and sharing is really the the culture that we are building within the Rare Epilepsy Network, and that started you know it preexisted prior to COVID, um, but COVID has certainly made that even more critical. You know, as mentioned earlier, these are small, teeny tiny communities. I mean, we have some some of the rare diseases that maybe have. You know, a hundred thousand people with the diagnosis, but we also have communities, as I mentioned, where, you know, there's patients. There's two patients out there. There's you know, thirty patients out there. There's maybe a hundred patients out there, and so um, for the organizations, particularly those that are representing small patient populations collaboration and partnership is everything for them those families and and I was in that boat myself as a parent when my son was diagnosed with HH it was a long time before I even met, you know, a doctor that had familiarity with that disease, and certainly another family that had um, any, you know, familiarity with that disease. And and those were critical meetings for me as a parent to have somebody who understood what my family was experiencing, what the roadmap looked like, what the trajectory for my son would look like. So partnerships, sort of within each organization, but then certainly among the different organizations. I think, you know. Good Good example of this is that when the families are fortunate to find an organization where their disease is represented, but that disease may only be able to you know gather those families together maybe once a year, once every other year. And yet, if the families with one rare diagnosis have opportunities in their local community to meet other families with rare diagnoses, building on what I was explaining earlier, even though the diagnoses might be different, the comorbidities are possibly the same or similar. And to have that local support network of people that just kind of understand the challenges um, of, you know, either raising or taking care of a rare loved one. Um, the notion of, you know, the, the, um, care team, which can be multidisciplinary and very broad, and the responsibility of caregivers for sort of managing all of that. And frankly, also the exhaustion, um, that the different caregivers can experience as well. Having community, having other people that, um, understand that is, is critical as well. So I do think that, um, you know, the, the idea of partnership is a theme that runs through the Rare Epilepsy Network, it runs through each of the individual organizations, and it sort of crosses over um, between the organizations and the diseases as well. Awesome! So many key nuggets that you just
0: you just mentioned in that in that summary and that explanation. So thank you for that, and I, I really love this partnership piece where we're really able to leverage best practices um, across across the spectrum, regardless, irrespective of. Um, the actual disease state that can help us all in our work, um, whether we're caregivers, clinicians, parents, advocates. So I really like that last point that you made. And as we want to make sure that we always, always, always let our listeners know where they can learn more about our our podcast guests and the work that they're doing, please let us know what's on the horizon for Rin, and please share how folks can get in contact with you or learn more about
2: the work. Thank you. So, um, if anybody's interested in learning more about Ren, I strongly encourage you to visit the Rare Epilepsy Network website and it's rareepilepsy You can also email info at rare epilepsy and We, um, as I mentioned, even though we are an umbrella organization, you know, if you are living with a rare epilepsy and you want to find an organization that represents your um, specific diagnosis, please, please visit our website, look on our membership and partner list. You will see all 70 rare epilepsy organizations listed there. I hope that you will find one um, that will be meaningful to you and for your diagnosis where and you'll be able to through that to find community information, research, and support. But if you don't see an organization for your condition listed on the rare epilepsy network, I want you to reach out to me as well. Um, Because that is part of our mission, right, is to make sure that when folks are newly diagnosed, we can match them with the best resources that are out there and available. I'll also put a plug in, in May um, 7th and 8th, several of the Epilepsy Foundation's regional, the Western regional chapters, are actually organizing A rare epilepsy conference, a two day conference where they have invited both patients and advocates and caregivers, as well as some of the top researchers um, in the epilepsy space. And they're going to be talking about a lot of really relevant topics, including things like, you know, um, uh, what's coming down the research pipeline. Um, what to do if you uh, if you have an unknown diagnosis, what are um, best ways to handle some of the common comorbidities across the rares. So I would strongly encourage, and, and this is um, a rare epilepsy-wide conversation. So there will be people from all different types of rare epilepsies sharing their perspective and sharing information. Um, so I hope folks will um, take advantage of that. And um, if we can include information uh, associated with this podcast, um, we'll be sure to include a link for that as well. Thank you so much, Eileen. You absolutely can. We
0: appreciate your time. We appreciate you sharing those resources and letting folks know how they can learn more about RIN or and or become more involved so super 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 many 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 thanks to you for your time today cody and i are super appreciative this was quite informative and insightful and we just want to say thank you again we are proud to partner with REN, and we certainly look forward to continuing this conversation as the work of our foundations and and organizations continues to grow as a whole so thank you so much. Uh, we certainly look forward to promoting activities and events that are coming down the pipeline for Ren. So again, thank you for your time and thank you everyone for listening in.